Well, we're continuing our study in um, um, Mr. Williamson's book on the Garden of Eden to the Glory of Heaven, and we uh, nearly completed chapter one last time. And the reason why we're studying this book together is because it's the best book that I've found that's ever been written on the, on the biblical doctrine of the covenants. And uh, so consequently, we have determined that since we were going through chapter seven in our confession of faith, which deals with the subject of the covenants, that we would spend some extended time on that topic and um, actually uh, look at the five major biblical covenants and do so uh, through the instruction that is given to us in the book. Now, um, <clears throat> we have said that uh, theologians have established this construct of covenant of works and covenant of grace, uh, <clears throat> but in fact, uh, those really aren't covenants at all. Um, they are methods whereby God dealt with people uh, in terms of salvation. And so prior to the fall, Adam could have become uh, confirmed in righteousness and obtained eternal life uh, as a result of God's gracious arrangement that he would do so if he would obey God and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And were he to pass that temptation and obey God in that circumstance, he would have then been given the right to eat of the tree of life and would have been confirmed in righteousness and lived forever. So um, that's called a covenant of works. It's not a covenant at all because there's no oath sworn promise. Furthermore, it's still a gracious arrangement because uh, Adam's obedience was not something that earned him the right to the tree of life. Adam's obedience was something that he simply owed to God uh, by virtue of him being a creature. And Christ himself taught that when he said that uh, after we have obeyed, we need to say we're unprofitable servants. We've only done that which was required of us. So there's no profit uh, even in the perfect good works of a pre-fallen Adam. Uh, they're simply the fulfillment of obligations. So the fact that God arranged that Adam would obtain eternal life and be confirmed in righteousness um, as a result of obedience was an arrangement of grace. So, um, you know, the whole idea of the covenant of works, um, the word covenant doesn't really fit there and works really doesn't fit there either because it was still a salvation by grace. It was just a salvation by grace on the basis of what Adam did as opposed to salvation by grace that we have now on the basis of what Christ did. Um, <clears throat> so um, uh, in any event, um, since the fall, the arrangement that God has made for our salvation is salvation by faith through grace, um, salvation by grace, I should say, through faith in uh, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman that was promised. Now, uh, this plan of redemption that God has established uh, has been carried out uh, through uh, covenants. And so we talked about the importance of covenants, and we said that covenants are the central organizing principle of the Bible uh, by which God's plan of salvation is carried out and executed uh, across the process of time. And uh, we then talked about a definition of a covenant. 
and uh, we looked at um, the identifying marks of the covenants, and we said, based on those five identifying marks, that a covenant is a sovereign, gracious, oath-sworn promise that defines relationships. Those five things were mentioned on pages 18 and 19 of the book that we studied together. So a covenant is a sovereign thing in that God dictates the terms and God initiates the covenants. It's gracious in that in the covenantal arrangements, God is always conveying things to people that they don't deserve and they haven't earned. He's always conveying blessing through the covenants. And then, of course, they're oath sworn in that God always doesn't just make a promise, but he swears an oath that that promise is true. And thus, our memory verse today, we're in God more willingly uh, to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, uh, confirmed it with an oath. And so, uh, how did God make a covenant? He always confirms it with an oath. And then, of course, it always contains a promise. God always says in his covenants, here's what I am going to do. And so God has lots, thousands, literally, of promises in the Bible. But a promise isn't a covenant. A covenant is a promise that's confirmed by the swearing of an oath. And so those two immutable things, the promise, which is true in and of itself, God never lies. And then he confirms that promise with an oath that he will not lie. And that if he's lying, he will forfeit his own life. Um, doubly assures us that what he's promising us is absolutely the truth. So, um, and then of course, these covenants always define uh, relationships between us and God and uh, how God is going to deal with those that he is uh, making the covenant with. Now, that's where we wound up last time. And today we want to cover the final section of chapter 1, beginning on, on page 19, which talks about the importance of the covenants. And the question is, is why should we take the time and spend so much energy and effort on a study of the covenants? Well, we could say that we're doing it because it's part of the whole counsel of God and all scripture is profitable. And of course, that's true. Uh, but there are more important reasons than that as to why we should study the covenants. And uh, the, the primary reason why, one of the major reasons why, and we've talked about this already, is that covenants are the central organizing principle of the Bible. The covenants mark the pivotal moments of God's revelation to men. They serve as organizing principles for the things that God reveals to us in the Bible. And so what we have in the Bible is not just a, a random hodgepodge of, of things just thrown together any old way. Uh, what we have is very organized and orderly presentation of God's redemptive work and truth. Well, look at there. Our girl is home from Africa. All right. You just uh, swam and walked and made it. Yeah, good. All right. Okay. So anyway, the covenants are the central organizing principles of the scriptures. And then the second reason why the covenants are so important is not only are they the outline of the Bible, literally, and the outline of God's redemptive program as it unfolds, but secondly, the covenants 
explain God's redemptive works. We've made this constant uh, connection between God's plan of salvation and the covenants and how the covenants uh, illustrate and declare and explain God's salvation. And so uh, there are three great salvations in the scripture connected with the three major covenants. There was, of course, uh, the salvation of a family from the worldwide flood, and that's attached to the Noahic covenant. And then there is the salvation of a nation from bondage to Egypt, and that's associated with the old covenant. And then, of course, there is the salvation of a world of sinners from destruction uh, through Christ vis-a-vis the new covenant. So we have the Noahic covenant associated with salvation from the flood. We have the Mosaic or the old covenant associated with salvation from Egypt. And then we have the new covenant associated with salvation from sin. And the salvations from the flood and the salvation from Egypt were both pictures and predictors of the salvation uh, that Jesus Christ was going to accomplish uh, by his uh, death on the cross. So the covenants are God's interpretive tools to explain the meanings of his saving acts. Each of the covenants has a connection with the a redemptive work of Christ. And so as we look at the covenants, we see in them uh, expressions and illustrations of Christ's saving work. So that's the second reason why the study of the covenants is so important, not only because of the central organizing principle of the Bible, but because through them, God's saving work is illustrated and explained. Now, the third reason why we Uh, study the covenants and why it is so important is because they help us see the progressive nature of God's redemptive plan. Over literally thousands of years, God was progressively unfolding a plan to save sinners that was consummated in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what a study of the covenants does is it takes us along the journey from the very first promise of God to Adam and Eve in the garden to the inauguration of the new covenant, which is the last and final covenant, which then fully exposes and explains and reveals the totality of God's saving work on the part of uh, his elect. And so what we see is that uh, the people uh, from Abel onward, had exactly the same salvation that we have. And these covenants uh, demonstrate uh, the essential unity of that salvation that we enjoy together. And yet we also see that God dealt differently with people as well. So you have in the covenants this theme of unity, which ties them all together, which is they're all saved the same way on the same basis by the same person. And yet we see diversity in that God dealt with different, uh, uh, he dealt with the covenant community different ways over the process of time. Uh, So, uh, for example, under the Noahic covenant, um, there were certain rules and and procedures and signs implemented and then 
in the Abrahamic covenant, of course, circumcision was introduced. And then uh, under the old covenant, we had the tabernacle and the whole priestly sacrificial system. And then under the new covenant, of course, we have the church and we have the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. So um, the covenants have uh, continuities and they have discontinuities within them. And the only way we're going to rightly understand uh, what we should be doing uh, in, in our lifetimes is to understand uh, what covenants apply to us, what don't, or what parts of them apply, and what don't. And then finally, we see that the covenants really show the centrality of Christ in the scriptures. Um, every single one of the covenants has to do with Jesus Christ. You remember that Jesus said in John chapter 5, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. And so wherever we look in the scriptures, we find Jesus Christ. And some of the greatest revelation of Jesus Christ is found in the covenants. You remember that when Jesus was walking along the Damascus Road, uh, not the Damascus Road, but the uh, Emmaus Road with the, with the two disciples after his death and burial and, and resurrection, and they were puzzled and they didn't understand what happened. And it says, beginning with the prophets and in all the scriptures, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So uh, the scriptures are Christocentric. The covenants are uh, particular points of illumination regarding Christ. And so therefore, the covenants are important to study because they reveal to us Jesus Christ. So in the covenants, we have our birthright, we have the basis of our relationship with God, we have the explanation of the unfolding plan of God's redemption, we have the great illumination of Jesus Christ, and we have the central organizing principle of the scriptures. And that's the reason why it's so important for us to understand them. If we're going to understand the structure of the Bible, if we're going to understand God's redemptive acts, if we're going to understand the progressive nature of this redemptive plan, if we're going to understand the personal work of Christ, we have to understand the covenants. And so our memory verse today, Ephesians 2, verses 12 and 13, says that um, if you're outside the covenant, then you're in trouble. Notice it says that at that time you were without Christ. Now that's a terrible condition to be in, to be without Christ. And notice what goes along with being without Christ. We're aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. That is, we're excluded from the covenant community of the people of God. Strangers from the covenants of promise. And so if you're a stranger from the covenants of promise, then you are outside the covenant community and you're also outside Christ. Result? We have no hope and we're without God in the world. So if, if you're not in a covenant relationship with God, then you don't have God, you don't have hope, you don't have Christ, you're not part of the people of God, and thus you are utterly lost and, and hopeless. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off 
are made near by the new covenant, the blood of Christ. Okay, Because the blood of Christ is the blood of the covenant. Uh, remember when he held up the cup, he says this cup is the blood of, 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 of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of the sins of many. And so he says, now in Christ Jesus, you who sometime were far off or made near by the blood of Christ. So, um, you know, if you're not in a covenant relationship with God, you're in trouble. And notice it talks about the covenants, plural, of promise, singular. There's one promise, and that's the promise of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the covenants, plural, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Old, the New, the Davidic, those covenants, plural, all explain the promise, singular, of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. So to be outside the covenants is to be outside salvation. And if you're concerned about your salvation, you need to really be concerned about the covenants and what your relationship is to them and whether you're in them or out of them. And you need to be concerned about the covenant community and are you in the covenant community or are you outside the covenant community? And um, of course, you need to be concerned about your relationship with Christ. Are you in Christ or out of Christ? And see, those three things go together. If you're in the covenant and you're in the covenant community and you're in Christ, then you have all kinds of hope. But those three things come as a package. And people say, oh, you know, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. Well, that's great. Uh, but that's not all there is to it. As soon as you get saved, what does God do? He baptizes you into the body of Christ, right? For by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether bond or free, and been made to drink into one spirit. Okay? And we're also incorporated into the new covenant. Because what is baptism? Baptism is the sign and the declaration that we are in the new covenant. And we also have the covenantal meal, which is... The Lord's Supper, which we're going to observe today. So um, that's the reason why covenants are so important, and that's the reason why we need to really understand them. Now, the last sentence in uh, chapter 1 on page 22 says this, beginning with the pivotal events in the first chapter of the Bible that declare the promise of redemption. We will survey each of the five major covenants in the Old Testament. Then we will move on to look at the New Covenant, which draws together all the others and displays their fulfillment in Christ. And that really summarizes what I just said. Um, there's this uh, promise of redemption. And then there's these five covenants that explain it. Now, that leads us then to chapter 2 of our study together. And you'll notice the title of chapter 2 is two words, created and fallen. Now, if you get the implication of those two words, you get anthropology. Anthropology is the study of man. And so... 
Who are you? You need to be able to answer that question. Who are you? Who are we as humans? Now, different people have different answers to that question. And we see that there are delusional false views that people have of who they are. And these delusional false views usually revolve around materialistic conceptions that we are simply a combination of time plus energy plus chance arrived at through the process of evolution and random selection. So if that's all you are, then essentially you're no different than a rock because you're just simply a different arrangement of atoms from a rock. Okay? And so if, in fact, that's how you came into existence, then there is no God, and uh, there's no meaning, there's no morals, there's no purpose, there's no plan. You're just an arrangement of atoms. But you see, people have a hard time living with that, so then they come up with some notion uh, of significance, meaning, and purpose, uh, an identity that is based on uh, a delusional self-exaltation and self-righteousness and a vision of one's own personal goodness. And so people have this attitude that I don't have any accountability to God because there is no God I evolved. But at the same time, they have this attitude, I am God because I'm self-determinant and I get to choose what's right and wrong and, and how I live my life. And because of these delusional false views of who we are, uh, people engage in all kinds of, of um, very strange behavior and arrive at very strange and, and erroneous conclusions. Um, and when you start to poke at uh, those various presuppositions, they begin to get very nervous because they really don't correspond with reality as to who they are and what life is and and what uh, it all means. So it's really important for us to have a true view of who we are. And who we are revolves around those two words. First of all, we were created by God in his image. And then secondly, we fell from that original righteousness and purity so that that image was defaced and marred and there was introduced into our lives uh, a principle of depravity that causes us to be hostile towards God. Now, you can see these two aspects of the fact that we're created and the fact that we're fallen in the strange combination of the goodness and the evil of men. Now, because we're created by God and because we're made in the image of God, we're capable of doing some very wonderful things. Um, you know, when you look at how people help other people out when there's an earthquake or a flood, when you look at the advances that have been made in medical science, when you see the way people give uh, to the poor, uh, when you see how people are generous and kind, and people are in many, in many ways, uh, you go, where does that come from? Well, the answer is we are created in the image of God. And though that image is marred and defaced, there's still certain aspects of it there that are present and manifest themselves. But on the other hand, not only are we capable of doing some pretty good things, humanly speaking, externally speaking, we're also capable of doing some horrible, horrible things. And so we think of people like mass murderers, um, 
pedophiles, Hitler killing all the Jews, um, you know, the, the rampant homosexuality in our nation, all of these things. People can be horribly evil and people can also be good. And the question is, is why is there this contradiction? Why do you have some people that go out and serve humanity and other people that go out and abuse humanity? And sometimes the same people do, do them both. Well, the answer is, is because we were created and therefore we have the image of God in us. And therefore there's something there that uh, motivates us to want to be good and do good. But on the other hand, we're fallen and sinful and the carnal mind is at enmity against the law of God. And therefore we are capable of doing some awful, awful, awful things. Now, um, what God has done is he's implemented a plan of redemption in order to fix not the problem of our creation. Because when he got done with creation, what did he say about it? It's very good. But the problem of the fall. And so all that is said and done in the five major covenants that we're going to consider have their purpose in restoring what was lost before the fall or in bringing to pass what was promised in the garden after the fall. So before the fall, God had a plan for mankind. Well, guess what? He's still fulfilling it. And he's fulfilling it by accomplishing what he originally intended and then by fixing the part that got ruined. So what we have is these two profound facts. We are created in God's image and we are fallen into sin and death. And the better we understand these realities and their implications, the better we're going to understand ourselves, God, and the nature of our relationship with him. So what we want to do then is we want to talk about these two things, our creation and our fall. And in talking about our creation, we want to talk about the fact that we are image-bearing creatures. Now that's what separates us from the animals. Animals don't have the image of God. We do. That makes us different. And so we are the crown of God's creative work in that we bear his image. Now, um, <clears throat> on page 27 of our book, uh, there's a quotation of Genesis 1, 26 to 28 and verse 31. And I just like to, I just like to read that. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. <clears throat> now, what you have then is the record there that God directly and immediately created man. And if we're going to take the Bible seriously and we're going to believe what it says, then we absolutely have to reject evolution lock, stock, and barrel. The Bible makes it very clear that man didn't evolve out of some subhuman creatures. 
but that God formed him directly and immediately out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And God said of this creation that it was good. Now, when we say that we are directly created by God, we're directly created by God for the purpose of bearing his image. We're saying things that are directly contradictory to those who say we were evolved up out of uh, non-living matter and we are simply advanced animals, uh, but there's no real fundamental difference between us and the apes and the dogs except complexity. That's it. And um, that's, of course, why you have the whole animal rights movement and, and all of that stuff. But the point is, knowing that you were created by God gives you a significance above and beyond that of the animals because in that creation, not only were you immediately made by him, as was everything else, but you were also made in his image. Now, knowing that God created you causes you to recognize you have a dependence upon him for your existence. And it also reminds you that you have a duty to God as your creator. So dependence and duty, these are the two things that flow out of the fact that we were directly created by God in his image. And you see the unsaved don't think that they need to depend on God at all. They can depend on themselves. And they think they don't have any duty to God. The only duty they have is to satisfy themselves. And so if you don't get origins right, then you don't get the philosophy of right, life right as well. And that's why as Christians, we live radically different than the world because we have this attitude, I'm dependent on God and I have duties to God because God created me. And if you don't believe God created you, then you're going to deny both of those, both of those facts. Now, <clears throat> we've been talking about being created in the image of God, and we have to ask ourselves, what exactly does that mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean we share God's essence, and it doesn't mean that there's a spark of the divine in us, okay? Um, you know, <clears throat> an artist can paint a self-portrait. Uh, I remember seeing a self-portrait of... Um, what was his name? Uh, yeah, he, he did one too, but uh, Norman Rockwell, that's the one I'm thinking of. Norman Rockwell, remember, he's got his pipe and he's leaning over. You've seen the painting. Now, is the painting Norman? No, but does the painting bear Norman's image? Indeed, it does. It's just like you in a photograph. I take a picture of you and I look at the photograph and I look at you. The photograph isn't you and it doesn't share your, your, your essence at all, but it is an image of you. And in many ways, it reflects your attributes, your eye color, shape of your ears, you know, the color of your hair, all those things, right? And so that's the way in which we bear the image of God. We don't share in his deity at all, but we do reflect his attributes in our souls and in our bodies, and so that's what it means to be made in God's image. Just like there's a distinction between the artist and the art that he produces, there's that same distinction between God and the image bearers that he produces. And so you'll find pantheists running around saying, well, you know, we're all part of the divine because we're the image of God. And uh, you have to say, wrong, uh, 
bearing the image of God doesn't mean we share his essence. Well, what does it mean to be in the image of God? Um, <clears throat> I think there's three things, at least, that, that um, manifest the image of God in us. There is, first of all, a moral likeness to God. A moral likeness simply means that we have a, a, a conscience, we have an awareness of right and wrong, and we have the capacity to make moral decisions, and that when God made us in his image morally, he made us to reflect his character, and he made us in harmony with his character. So, for example, God doesn't lie, and so he made us to not lie, to reflect that as as aspect of his character. And uh, so, uh, through the character of holiness, we reflect the image of God. So, there's this moral likeness. And then secondly, there's a personal likeness. And this personal likeness means that we are personalities like God is. God has an intellect, he thinks, he has an emotion, he feels, and he has a will, he chooses, okay? And so we have intellect, emotion, and will, and thus we reflect the personal nature of God. God is a person, and we are persons. We're not uh, blades of grass, we're not stones. Those things don't have personality. And then thirdly, we have a positional likeness. Uh, God is a God who has dominion over the whole universe, right? And what did he say to Adam and Eve? It says that he made man in his likeness and said to him, be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion over the, the earth. And so this idea of us exercising dominion is a reflection of God's dominion as well. So there's a moral likeness, there's a personal likeness, and there is a positional likeness. And these things at least reflect the image of God um, in us. Uh, why don't animals have the image of God? Well, <clears throat> because for one thing, they don't have a positional likeness. They're not given dominion. For a second thing, they don't have a moral likeness. They have no conscience. They have no capacity for moral decisions. Do they have personality? Yeah, animals have intellect, emotion, and will. That's obvious when you look at them, right? But just because they are personal doesn't mean they're in the image of God. So mankind alone uh, is in that position of bearing God's image. Now, another thing about our creation is that God made us both a body and a soul. And death, of course, is the separation of the body and soul. And the union of the body and soul is what constitutes life. When God made Adam, he formed him out of the dust of the earth, and he had a body. But a body without a soul isn't alive. And then it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And so consequently, man not only bears the image of God, but man also is alive in that these two parts, body and soul, are joined together. And of course, the result of the fall is that body and soul become separated from each other and we experience death and soul and body become separated from God and we experience eternal death. And the glory of the resurrection lies in the fact that those who know the Lord will have a transformed body and a sinless soul joined together which will forever work in harmony and bring glory to God uh, as our Redeemer. 
And so uh, the Bible talks about the redemption of our bodies as well as the redemption of our souls. So the blessings and the responsibilities of mankind is the next section that we're going to deal with. We're out of time and we will take up there where we left off today. But uh, I just want to summarize by saying this, that if we do not get the nature of man right, then we will not get the plan of redemption right that is expressed and illustrated in the covenants. And so that's the reason why he goes back and he starts with, well, who is man? And what condition is man in now? Because it's precisely the condition that man is in now that the covenants are the answer to and the solution for. And so if you don't have the problem right, then you're never going to understand the solution correctly. And so who are we? Remember those two key words, created and fallen. Now we've been talking about creation thus far that we have been made by God and therefore we're dependent on God. We have duties to God. We're made in the image of God. We reflect God um, morally, personally, and positionally. And then we are a body-soul unit. That's what constitutes um, life in us. So next time, uh, we'll take up uh, the responsibilities that we had as being people. And then we're going to look at how we violated those responsibilities and the effect of that, and then how the covenants are the remedy for the fall to restore us back to the position we had in original creation and bring us to the consummation that was supposed to be achieved in the original creation, but was thwarted by Adam's fall into sin. All right. Any questions? Okay, well, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for creating us. Lord, we would have no existence but by your divine sovereign initiative. And Lord, we recognize that every moment you uphold us by the word of your power, and did you not do so, we would slide back into non-existence in a moment. And so, Lord, we are dependent on you for our life. And Lord, we recognize that because of that, we have duties to you to obey you and to glorify you, to worship you, to serve you, to carry out your purposes. Father, help us to understand what those purposes are and may we fulfill them with our bodies and our souls. May our entire being be given over to accomplishing the purposes that you have towards us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.